just want to add to that, Lord, that we, um, we really want to do justice to your word today. Be faithful to your word. What we're looking at today is really practical. And we want to hear what you have to say. Amen. So the last time I spoke here at Freedom Church... Yeah, I'm on here. I'm on here. Can you all hear me? How's that? The last time I spoke here at Freedom Church, we spent some time looking at the power and the knowledge of God. His omnipotence and his omniscience. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. And we saw the truth that God does not make mistakes. And I talked a bit about Sharon and my experience as God-fearing parents of children with special needs. It's often a stressful journey, which has involved several brushes with death. And pain and complexity are our constant companions on this journey. And I explained how, irrespective of how it may seem from the outside, God has given us every reason to trust him, to follow him, to keep on going. And I know quite a few folks were away that Sunday, many at Steve's baptism. Hi, Steve. Good to see you. Just to say... Right. I'll turn it down a bit. Just to say that if, um, if I, what, what I say today seems like it's a bit lacking in context or background, have a listen to the previous sermon. Bless you. Have a listen to the previous sermon on the uh, podcast, because that will just give you context to some of what I'm saying today. It, the title was God Does Not Make Mistakes. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this sermon on the mount is a two-parter. <laughs> if thou didst miss last week's sermon, get thyselves down to the nearest camel train to Europe, tarry there around 1,500 years, whereupon a gentleman named Gutenberg will develop his printing press, and then thou shalt be able to read. <laughs> As a special reward for the particularly patient... If thou headest over to Japan and wait another 500 years, Sony will develop its Walkman and thou shalt listen to myriad people discussing this sermon, forsooth. Can you imagine? We're really blessed to live in such times, aren't we? So today we're going to concentrate on the practical aspect of how the gospel applies to disability, to mental health problems, to special needs. How exactly does the church respond? How does the Bible help when we're faced with these kinds of problems? So let's turn to the Word of God. Look, my first big scripture is from Psalm 139, really well-known passage. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So let's start with a simple test. Hands up if you're perfect. 
<laughs> right. So that means your body functions perfectly in every way. You've never made a mistake and never will, and you've never sinned. Still, still want to, yeah, okay. There's always one. Uh, King David wrote, <laughs> let us say, it's not true. <laughs> King David wrote Psalm 139. King David, the man who God loved because of his faithfulness. King David was not perfect. Now, it doesn't feel completely fair to list someone's shortcomings, especially when they're not around to explain themselves, but God has told us all about David for a reason. He had many great qualities, but quite a few not-so-great qualities. So, he coveted another man's wife. He saw this woman Bathsheba and he wanted her, though she was already married. And so was he, by the way. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was the king. Back in those days, he could basically have any woman that he wanted, it seems. Although he had plenty of wives and concubines. But no, that wasn't enough. He saw another man's wife. He wanted her and then he broke his vows as a king and as a servant of God by committing adultery with her. Then David covered up his sin, which is an, another way of saying he lied about it. He suppressed the truth. So he found out that Bathsheba had fallen pregnant, and he decided he was going to start on this course of deception. David manipulated people. He made sure that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, would be in a position to lie with her, so that people would assume Uriah was the father. And remember, there was no contraception in those days. So Uriah was in the middle of a war that Israel was fighting and David called him back from the battle and he tried to put him in a position where the inevitable would happen. The trouble was that Uriah was such an honourable man he couldn't conscience sleeping with his wife whilst his colleagues were still stuck fighting. So rather than accepting that the jig was up David then plotted Uriah's murder he arranged for Uriah to be... We all know this, don't we? The story really familiar. He, he arranged for Uriah to be positioned in the fiercest fighting at the next available skirmish, and he told his general to withdraw support from Uriah and just leave him there in the thick of the battle. So indirectly, David committed murder. The plot was carried out. Uriah was killed. And I know that some people at this point, if that had been them, they'd be thinking, oh, no. What have I done? Not David. So he continued with this, frankly, evil plan. So when a respectable time had elapsed for Bathsheba to mourn, he took her for his wife. And after this, she gave birth to their child. And still, David kept the whole thing covered up. It took a prophet of God to point out to David that God knew everything that had happened and that there were going to be consequences. And only then did it occur to David to repent. So in this one example, we see pride, arrogance, conspiracy, murder, adultery, deception, covetousness. He was far from perfect. And yet, despite this obvious imperfection, in Psalm 139, he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
So we see all sorts of things, and we call them imperfection. You know, I think about my back and the state that that's in. I've got two torn discs. I live with constant pain. I'm unfit. I eat more chocolate than I can honestly justify. And let's not get started on the sin in my life. There's far too much. I'm imperfect. And yet, I praise God because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. See, whatever the disability, whatever the limitation, whatever the lack or shortcoming as we see it, God alone puts the soul, the spirit, into every person who lives. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So God's intimately involved in the creation of every human being. And so I don't think we can take any other view than to accept God knows exactly what he's doing when he allows someone to be born with a disability or to begin a life that will at some point result in disability. God knows. Certainly in his omnipotence, as we saw last time, God could prevent it. And yet in the context of this fallen world so many times, he chooses not to. And so you have to think then that he's got a purpose in all of this. And again, when I spoke last time, I showed how we've had clear examples of God's purpose unfolding in the life of my family. You know, whatever it was, whatever else it was, when my children were born, it wasn't a mistake. God was there at their conception, throughout their growth, and he's with them now. And that's true for everyone. There are no exceptions. So God's involved in the creation of every human being, whether suffering from disability, mental health problems, addiction, ongoing sin, anything. Next really crucial scripture is 1 Corinthians 12 going to read a fair chunk of this, 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 14, 14 to 26. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Bless you again. If someone with quadriplegia should say, because I cannot walk, I do not belong to the body, that would not make them any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot say to someone diagnosed with autistic spectrum condition, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
Now listen. God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. We could spend a lot of time on that passage, couldn't we? The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it. So we're honouring each other. We honour those with special needs. What does this look like in practice? Now, it's quite amazing to be living in times where disability is becoming less of a stigma. It's better understood, better accommodated. Disability rights have made their way into legislation and planning laws. So new buildings have to meet certain standards for access. I think it's right to say that this law honours people. You may well know that um, my family worshipped at Northgate for many years, and when they were looking at access to the building, they consulted us. They wanted to know what sort of ramp would be suitable for wheelchair users when it came to width, weight-bearing, steepness, and so on. You know, this is so obvious that maybe we wouldn't even think of it as something that fulfills the requirements of the gospel. But it does. Hearing loops. Now, this is a system that transmits sound directly to hearing aids. It's great for a church environment. The sound from the microphone goes via the mixing desk to the hearing aid. And that means that all the background noise is eliminated. That that's stuff that the hearing aid would normally amplify indiscriminately. So, and, and in a church, the background noise can be overwhelming for someone with impaired hearing. So within a, with a hearing loop, the problem's virtually eliminated. Vision impairment. There are many different forms of vision impairment, and some of them have slightly contradictory needs. But something as simple as producing large print copies of the lyrics for the worship songs, that can make a huge difference to how much someone's able to feel a part of the worship service. So these practical strategies can present a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Do you wait for the needs to appear and then meet them? Or do you adapt your building in anticipation of them? Now, disability modifications can be expensive. We can personally testify to this. I wouldn't want to say here, but many, many pounds have been spent, public money and charity money, adapting our house for the benefit of our boys. And between us as a congregation, we're custodians of the money that God entrusts to us, so we need to make wise decisions. That said... Here at Freedom, we've received prophecies that we will have a ministry to those with disability. So, do we wait for them to come, or prepare for when they come? And I hasten to add that these are things that are already under consideration here, and that's absolutely right. The leaders of Freedom are looking for God's guidance in how to use the resources he's given to the church. So, in keeping these things in our thinking, our planning our prayers, we are honouring these people. So what about outside this building, when you step outside here? We spend a relatively small proportion of our time in church meetings, some more than others. 
But what about our homes? Are they welcoming to disabled guests? Now, our homes often represent a place where we feel safe, cocooned maybe. We can shut the door on the outside world and we feel comfortable there. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it comes with a risk that we then settle. We've met our own needs and we leave it at that. But the gospel, the good news of Christ, you can't put it in a box. You can't leave it beside the front door and pick it up on your way out. Just use it when you're out and about. The Bible tells us that we serve a jealous God and he wants all of us, every part of us, every aspect of our lives. Indeed, that's the only way we can be fully satisfied as created beings, surrendering to him completely. So the power and the influence of the gospel, that needs to extend to our homes, how we use them, what we do with them. Now, for many of us, it's one of the most valuable resources we have at our disposal, whether we're buying or renting. So you ask someone into your home for coffee, for a meal, you're opening yourselves up. You're letting them in, making yourselves vulnerable. Giving something that's precious to you, in most cases. And I know that many people are good at extending hospitality, so what I'm really saying here is, when you extend that offer of hospitality, just think about whether there's anything you can do or ask to help your guest. Even before you extend the invitation, look around, not just here, but out in the world, in your jobs, your schools, your colleges, amongst your friends and neighbours. Who will you bring into your home, into your life? Hospitality is a big part of the gospel. One of the worst things that we can do is to look at a particular person, see their needs, and then write ourselves off. Say, I'm not the right person to befriend them. I wouldn't know what to say. His wheelchair wouldn't fit in my house. Look, I'm just mentioning wheelchairs as one of the more obvious examples, but it applies to any need. Every challenge has a solution. Every doorway can be lowered. Every step can be rammed. I say that, but we've got a slight challenge. Our house is set back from the road, right? 60-foot front garden, and there are three steps up to our front door. So we calculated that in order to get a ramp that is like regulation steepness to get us into the front door, it would have to be 30 foot long. <laughs> so instead, um, Morgan comes around the back of the house, and that's where, how we maintain his access, and he has a ramp up to the patio doors. So I say again, hospitality is a big part of the gospel. Let's be sensitive to each other's needs. Let's especially be sensitive to the needs who don't know Jesus who've decided God isn't for them. People are too scared to talk to them. You know, the good news can't really be good. No, we have to be salt and light, flavouring this flavourless world, bringing the light of gospel into their darkness, bringing hope. Cracking verse, James 1.27 says this. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When did you last help someone in need? Don't tell me, but answer that question 
in your heart. Now, this isn't to make anybody feel guilty. Heaven forbid. But James says, true religion, not the sort that's obsessed with looking righteous, doing the right thing. No, true religion, the kind of life that flows out of someone who really appreciates and understands what God has done for them, true religion goes out to those who are the most needy, marginalized, unprotected, if for no other reason than to be with them. You know, James doesn't say true religion begins with building orphanages or taking up collections for the poor. The gospel includes that, but first he says true religion is to visit them in their affliction. Once you see the need, though, you're going to want to meet it. Let's not close our eyes to a suffering world. We are God's answer. After Jesus, he sends us. Go out into all the world. Now, I'm going to spend a minute, um, a moment talking about autism. There are many types, many different types of special needs, many different disabilities. And there isn't time to talk about all of them, unless you're really, really patient people and can hang around until midnight. I'm sure you're really patient people, by the way. I just haven't prepared that much. <coughs> Shut up, Rob. Keep going. <laughs> Let's just look at autism. Look at how the gospel applies to this condition and consider how the church can respond practically. And this then gives us an approach to use with any form of special need. Okay? So the first question we might ask is, does autism appear anywhere in the Bible? We may have a small snag here because the word autism didn't even exist until 1911. I'm going to absolutely annihilate the translation, the pronunciation of this name anyway, this fella, uh, Eugene Bluller? Eugene Bluller? I don't know. Eugene Bluller was, he was a Swiss psychiatrist and he devoted his life to looking for ways to improve the human condition. And he's responsible for words like schizophrenia and autism. So clearly, given that the word, the concept, didn't even exist until the early 20th century, autism isn't specifically going to be mentioned in the Bible. And I can't think of any certain reference to autism. But there are one or two characters who might fit the bill. How about Samson? You can find the story later, the story of Samson in Judges 13 to 16. Samson does a number of things that seem, shall we say, unusual. And an autism diagnosis would quite possibly explain them. So in Judges 14, we see Samson being attacked by a lion. The Spirit of God comes on, lion, on Samson and he tears the lion to pieces. Now, I don't know about you, but if a lion came roaring at me, Holy Spirit notwithstanding, <laughs> I don't think my first reaction would be to stand and fight it, barehanded. So Samson destroys the lion, and the passage goes on to say that he didn't tell his parents that he'd done it. He was on his way to woo a young lady, and he gets delayed by this lion and then continues on his way. And you can imagine his mother saying later on, Oh, Samson, how did it go when you went to see your young woman? It was fine, mother. Anything happened on the journey? 
No, not really, Ma. <laughs> and a, a few days later, he's passing the body of the lion, which is still where he left it, and some bees have taken up residence, and now there's honey, line, honey there. Um, dead lion, bees, honey. Again, I don't know about you, but my first instinct wouldn't be to go and get me some lion carcass sweet goodness. <laughs> what with all the bees buzzing around and whatnot. Whatever the reason, Samson is neither intimidated nor grossed out. Possibly autistic? But there's more. So Samson puts on this wedding breakfast and he poses a riddle to his guests. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And if they can guess what the riddle means, he gives them a prize. If they can't guess, they give him a prize. Now we know, because we just read the story, that he's talking about the whole lion-bee-honey situation. But they couldn't possibly know that. So unsurprisingly, three days later, they still haven't worked out his riddle. So they threaten his wife in order to force her to wheedle the answer out of him. So she flutters her eyelashes, cries a bit, you know the drill, carries on with this performance for a week, and eventually he tells her, and she tells them. And he's resisted this performance for a week, bear in mind. So they answer the riddle. What is stronger than a lion? What is sweeter than honey? And Samson just loses his mind. If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle, he says. Ploughed with my heifer? <laughs> I can't be sure, but I suspect that even back in those days, that wasn't particularly complimentary. <laughs> and then Samson goes on this whole Hulk smashing spree. He beats up 30 men from the same town or clan. He takes their stuff and gives it to the people who'd answered the riddle. And doesn't this strike you as a bit, you know, extreme? And then, of course, comes the story of Delilah. She asks him where his strength comes from, and he keeps telling lies. And each time, Delilah's arranged for the Philistines to take Samson away. And each time, he hasn't really lost his strength, so he foils the plot. Until the last time. And this is where it becomes a little bit hard to understand. So three times they go through this charade, and each time Samson says, this is how you defeat me, and the middle of the night, that very thing happens, and Philistines try to subdue him by the method that he said will work, and Samson breaks free. So you know, if you were Samson, you might be thinking, hey, there's a pattern to this. I tell my wife about method A to defeat me, method A happens. There might be a link here. So anyway, um, Delilah turns on the waterworks, Samson gives in, tells her the strength is in his hair, she shaves it off while he sleeps. How do you sleep through that? And the same thing happens again, the Philistines come. And here's the really weird part. Samson says to himself, I will go out, as at other times, and shake myself free. How could he not know? Well, one possible answer is that Samson was on the autistic spectrum. You know, often people on the spectrum find it impossible, impossible to guess the motives of other people that can't read them. It doesn't come naturally. And this isn't to say that Samson was unintelligent or limited. No, it's more that he had a blind spot. He didn't know why Delilah was asking for his secret even after three ambushes. 
And this is often the way for people on the autistic spectrum. The world is hard to understand. Things that many people take for granted don't come naturally. In a very real sense, if you're on the spectrum, you probably need a map just to negotiate life. So briefly, another character possibly with autism, Joseph, he has these dreams in which it seems like to him the whole, his whole family is serving him. And most people, they'd keep that to themselves. Or maybe just one or two trusted friends. Not Joseph, apparently completely oblivious to the impact he's going to have on his family, to the way he's going to wind his brothers up. He just blabs out the whole thing. And his brother, his brothers, they get suitably wound up, they get very close to killing him, and instead they sell him into straight slavery. And then, you know the story, Joseph goes on to have this genius-level ability to manage the affairs of an entire kingdom. And it's like he has this slightly narrow, very specific talent, and he's not good at reading people. So who knows? What is autism? There isn't a simple answer to that question. It's not just one condition, it's a spectrum of multiple different conditions. And some people diagnosed with autistic spectrum condition will find it easy to cope with life, and others will find it very hard. What they all have in common is they don't view life the same way as other people. So they can often seem rude or abrupt, but the truth is they're simply a lot less aware of social conventions, a lot less able to read body language. So let me take an extreme example. A friend of ours has a boy on the autistic spectrum, and one day they're out shopping, and he sees an overweight lady. And they're all shoppers around, and as loud as you like, in her hearing, he says, Mummy, why is that lady so fat? Okay, so now most of us who are listening are curling up on the inside. Now, I don't know if I can explain this well or do justice to the boy involved, but he literally just wanted to know why that lady was heavier than his mother. And if you'd said to him she has a thyroid condition or she's been really depressed and when she eats she feels better for a while or she just really, really likes cake, he would have said, oh, okay. Question answered. He was genuinely curious. He wasn't judging. He wasn't trying to make her feel bad. He wasn't being nasty. So many people will know instinctively that that kind of comment can be very upsetting, insensitive, wrong. But this boy doesn't have that instinct. So, not malicious, not intentionally offensive. What then do we do? I would say, as Christians, as brothers and sisters, in the light of the scriptures we've already read today, we have a duty to help each other. There's one more scripture that particularly applies here. It's, um, it governs how we, without autism, treat those with. And it speaks to those with autism about how they should interact with the world. You see, God's word covers this. Romans 8, 16 to 20. This is our last really key passage. Romans 8, 16 to 20. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think we'd all do well to meditate on that passage, Romans 8, 16 to 20. Live in harmony with each other. Autism can result in broken communication. The only way then to restore communication and live in harmony is for both parties, honestly and openly, without personal grudges, without pride, to come together and seek common ground, to seek harmony. Practically, if it's got really bad, use a mediator. Someone without personally invested feelings who's good at facilitating communication. I bet we all know someone like that. Never be wise in our own sight. That's so relevant, isn't it? You know, we think we know a lot, but autism's only now being slightly understood. But God's always understood. He's always known that that person didn't mean to be rude. Be careful of our instinctive reaction to how people behave. Let's listen to God. See, a lot of time, when we're walking God's way, we have to put down the things we think we know. He is much wiser than we are. And the end of that passage presents a real challenge. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I've known quite a few people on the spectrum over the years, and many of them have been God-fearing. The ones that seem to be most able to function, to interact with, the, with other people, to have successful relationships without lots of friction, they're the ones who accept this principle. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably. You know, for someone on the spectrum, that means learning, possibly even by rote, how not to offend people accidentally. Now this is difficult. One person I know says she thinks she gets it right about 50% of the time. She's very intelligent. Another person I know doesn't follow this principle so much, offends people a lot of the time. So let's learn together. Now I think in the case of autism, there has to be a good intention on both sides and a willingness to listen, to understand, to pray together, not to put up barriers and defences. So I've tried to keep this really practical today, and I hope that some of what I've said at least suggests an approach we can adopt in showing love to one another, regardless of special need or disability. If the church can't get this right, who can? We have the love of God at our disposal. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you have anything, any questions about this, if anything's not clear about what I've said today, come and have a chat. You know, there, there are many things that I don't know. Many things. But God, in his wisdom, has allowed Sharon and I to encounter some challenges in this area. And with his help... We're muddling through. 
And if we can, through our experiences, help others, well, we just love that. And all the more glory goes to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your, your will here, your purposes. You are a loving God. You are not pouring judgment on us. But we have a duty, as your sons and daughters, to follow Christ's example. And he accepted everyone except those who religiously thought themselves better than others. So Lord, help us not to fall into this trap. And please help us to set aside our own preconceptions and just listen to your Holy Spirit guiding us as we walk, as we listen, as we try to do things your way, as we follow Jesus' example. For your name and for your glory. Amen.